this is a this is a no swearing podcast, correct? Correct. Okay. No swearing, no heresy. Well, Paul has to get off then. Everybody and welcome to the second episode of Peter's Field Hospital, the official podcast of wherepeteris.com. My name is Mike Lewis and I'm your host. I'm the managing editor of the website Where Peter Is. Today I'm joined by Dan Amiri and Paul Fahey, and we are going to discuss Holy Week during this unusual time of pandemic. As everyone listening to us knows due to the coronavirus pandemic uh, most of us will be celebrating it at home without access to liturgy in person without access to the sacraments without access to the triduum catechumens and people studying to come into full communion with the church will have to wait dan uh what are your thoughts? Uh, what are you planning to do with your family, and, and how are you planning to make Holy Week a sacred time for you and your family? Thanks, Mike. Yeah, this week, I think this is the week that it's finally catching up with me, that we're not going to be able to do the liturgies like we had in the past. My wife and I, we always really appreciated doing you know, Holy Thursday. We, we'd go to all the liturgies with our family, and it was really, really beautiful and, and special. And it's it's really catching up with me this week that we were not going to be able to do that. So I think we're taking the advice of of uh, you know some of those resources out there. And Bishop Barron has a few things, and obviously all the all these dioceses have lots of resources that you can pick and choose from. But I think we're just going to do sort of one thing per day that's topical to that day with the kids. You know, not try to just not try to overdo it, but just choose something that. Um, is relevant to that day, Holy Thursday, Good Friday, what have you, and, and just try to make it a little bit special uh, for that day. And then obviously we'll, we'll have a big celebration on Easter. Yeah. And a lot of Catholics, it seems are um, actually pretty upset. And, and some would say they're almost pushing back against these guidelines. We talked earlier about a website that has been posted with a petition called We Are Easter People, um, and it's been signed by a number of fairly prominent Catholics, uh, including Janet Smith, who uh, was a seminary professor in your home state, Paul, Michigan, basically imploring the bishops to make the sacraments accessible to the people for this coming Easter. And, and I was just looking at the website. They've got over uh, 10,000 signatures. Paul, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think this is a real time that there's a lot of discouragement amongst Catholics right now. I'm, I'm hearing this from, you know, in my own family, um, I've seen this in myself and I'm seeing this in conversations that I'm having with Catholics all over. There's a lot of discouragement. I mean, there's been discouragement not being able to go to mass and receive communion the last two or three weeks, but it's like, now it's really hitting. A holy week is here. Easter's coming, and I'm not going to be able to go to mass. I'm not going to be able to receive communion. 
So I think there's a lot of discouragement there. I don't think the solution is to to push the line as as much as possible. I know that in in many states, including my own, the stay at home order. There's an exemption for religious institutions for um, for worship services, and I've been very grateful in my own diocese that uh, they very much have not taken advantage of of that exemption and said, "Hey, we w- want to follow what what our government officials are directing us to do." Right. So the idea of the church and bishops encouraging them to to push the line. Uh, I, I don't really like that. I, I don't think that's the solution. I think there's fear behind that, um, both in a theological sense, I think, where I think people are are afraid that if they don't have access to the sacraments, they don't have access to God or God's grace, um, which comes from a misunderstanding, like a really fundamental misunderstanding of who God is, which, I don't know, that's not surprising in this time of uncertainty and anxiety it's easy to feel distant from God. But if we but if we step back, we ask ourselves, is God the loving father that we profess him to be? Uh, or is he someone that's going to say, hey, you know what? Uh, your bishop shut down these sacraments, so you're not going to get the grace, right? Like, what kind of God do we believe in? Exactly. And and one of the things that, that we've discussed a lot at where Peter is, is this fundamental distrust in authority and among a certain sector of Catholics, especially in the United States, a major distrust of Episcopal authority of our bishops. One thing, as I mentioned last week, my brother is a priest and he spoke about how our Archbishop Wilton Gregory was in consultation with public health experts, with doctors, um, he was following this closely. He was talking to the local government. He was talking to the CDC officials really to get a grasp on what the appropriate response was to keep people safe in the community. And it just seems to me that, that this sort of petition doesn't acknowledge that there was some serious thought that went into this from the bishops. It's as if they're trying to ask the bishops to reconsider their options as if the bishops didn't evaluate their options before they made these decisions. Uh, Dan, do you kind of get that feeling? No, I, I completely agree. I mean, I think the bishops in general, you know, some of them were even like in my state, I think were, were kind of ahead of the curve in terms of making sure that all the, all the parishioners were staying healthy, that it was safe. I mean, obviously you think about a vulnerable population, mm-hmm. you, you, go first to a parish where I would say predominantly people are older and, and uh, it's, this is sort of, this, this would be a hotspot for Corona's virus. If, if, a lot, if people were allowed to continue get congregating together in close quarters on a regular basis. Now, of course, that's not what the, we are Easter people, people uh, are saying. Um, that's, that's obviously not what they're about. They're trying to, they're trying to think of some sort of innovation. <laughs> they're trying to think of, Something they could say to bishops and say, hey, have you thought about this before? Have you thought about using golden tongs or whatever Jan Smith was saying? And, you know, I kind of applaud the innovation, you know, drive in masses and uh, drive through confessions. And, yeah, I think that's to the extent that that is canonical. That makes sense. I think that's great. Um, But 
I just don't know if this the attitude of you know, hey bishops, uh, you, you really need to you really need to stop siding with the government on this. You need to you need to you need to think about you know prioritizing uh, the access to the sacraments over some of these other things that really are not as important. That's sort of the sense that I get from this you know this petition or this this approach to things. And um, honestly, maybe in the future we think about you know, what are some things we can do in a time like this where, you know, a pandemic is a problem, but I don't, I don't know if the church has ever really thought about a drive-in mass or using tongs to distribute communion. I just, I don't know if that's ever happened, but if we need to do it, it just can't happen within the space of a month or a week or what have you. So uh, we're, we're, unfortunately we're kind of stuck. I, that's, that's one of the things with, um, you know, those sacramental innovations that we discussed last, last week, whether it's anointing by proxy or whether it's using an electronic device to have confession. Obviously, the conventional wisdom is that this isn't that those two things wouldn't be valid. But even if they were to be put on the table in the middle of the storm, isn't the time to make a snap decision like that. The thing that really scares me about this virus is the reports of how it remains in the air or how surfaces remain um, infected uh, for lengthy periods of time. It's sort of this invisible contagion that doesn't have, that doesn't, that you're contagious before you show symptoms for several days and you don't know where you picked it up necessarily or um you know how it spreads and and we don't know enough about this virus at this point and we certainly don't have a cure or a treatment that social isolation is is really the only way that we can control it uh, paul do you have any more thoughts on on this i was gonna say it's, it's interesting how how quick we we were in the u.s to to jump to innovations i mean it's been only three weeks, right, um, here in the United States. Uh, and instead of drawing from, I mean, that was something, from my perspective, very glaringly absent from, uh, from this letter, is, there, is the lack of theology. Instead of drawing from the rich theology of Thomas Aquinas and the Catechism on God not being bound by the sacraments and how, how God's mercy and his grace extends beyond the sacraments, None of that was in this letter, none of this depth and richness of our tradition and theology, and how quickly, in the course of three weeks, now we're like, well, we should, we're concerned about religious liberty, we should push the line with these state orders, and we should come up with these innovations um, that at least I've never heard before in a very quick span of time. I don't know, I think there's much better routes to take. Yeah, I mean, one thing that that struck me, uh, you know, was very, very moving for me was uh, my pastor called me a couple of days ago and let me know that he had that his daily mass was offered for the repose of my my mom's soul. The work of the church, the prayer of the church is the liturgical prayer of the church is still continuing. And, I, you know, it still baffles me because all of the things that we that the same people were saying that the the people of the Amazon who don't have access to the sacraments should be doing spiritual communion, liturgy of the word, building up a hunger and a thirst for the Eucharist and for the sacraments, making perfect contrition, 
uh, when they don't have access to reconciliation, all the, all these kinds of things, they seem, it's like sacraments for me, but not for thee, uh, seems to be the, the mantra there. There's a sense of entitlement, Mike. Absolutely. And, and, and honestly, if nothing else, this has strengthened my sense of solidarity for the people of the Amazon. One thing that was spoken about was how with the lack of support from the institutional church, especially clergy, they've developed their own devotions, their own traditions, their own style of worship. That's still fully Catholic, but it's, it's something that they had to develop out of necessity, but also they developed it out of their love of Christ, out of their love of the church, out of their desire to worship as a community. Paul, I, I know you're a big fan of Pope Francis. I am. Dan is. Um, otherwise, we wouldn't be here. Uh, what are you looking to from Pope Francis this week? What do you think uh, he is going to say to the people of the world and who are suffering through this pandemic and who are enduring this really uncertain time? I mean, I, I think he's going to be saying that what he's what he's always been saying, even if you read, you look at the uh, Urbi et Orbi, um, what he said about, uh, I mean, his main main themes are uh, who is God in this, right? Is, is, is God in control? Yes, he's the one in control. Does he love us? Yes, he's the one who loves us and he's the one pursuing us. And what's our response going to be, right? He had that line in the, the Urbi et Orbi address where he's like, this is a time of judgment, not God judging us, but how are we going to judge? How are we going to choose what we're doing uh, with the situation in front of us? Uh, his homily today for Palm Sunday I read, I read this morning and it was the message of here's, here's the passion gospel. Here's Jesus on the cross. What is this image? This is the image of how much God loves us. He's willing to suffer and Pope Pilate specifically betrayal and abandonment, even to the extent of experiencing abandonment by God, even though he is God, he experienced, Jesus chose to experience what it felt like to be abandoned by God. This is how far God will go to chase after us. This is how much he loves us. And this is the message that we need to hear right now in the midst of this pandemic. We need to hear more about how much we can trust in God's power and in his goodness and his love for us. And we need to hear more how in response to that, we, we love our neighbors, right? This was something that the, that the Pontifical Academy for Life last week, they came out with a, a note uh, with some ethical concerns uh, in the midst of this pandemic. And one of the things they highlighted was this moment, maybe more than anything in recent history, highlights to us that there's no such thing as, as private actions. Our private decisions affect the whole community. I think the Pope's going to continue those themes right through. Um, I mean, that's, that's the gospel message. That's what he's been saying this whole time. Okay, so this next segment, um, we're going to change up a little bit. This week, I wrote a piece in Where Peter Is with the title, Criticizing the Critics. Uh, it was in response to an article in the National Review by Francis X. Mayer, 
who uh, was the longtime assistant to Archbishop Charles Chaput, the recently retired Archbishop of Philadelphia, wherein he felt that the supporters of Pope Francis, or as he called them, flax, had a tendency to be very dismissive, to not listen to what he described as respectful critics of Pope Francis. And then in his piece, he went on uh, to essentially give what I didn't think was a very respectful criticism. Basically, what he wrote was that the qualities of the pontificate include its anti-intellectual resentments and seeming diminishment of Catholic thought, its undermining of a healthy Christian anthropology, its unintended feeding of disunity and confusion, its ignoring legitimate expressions of concern or criticism, and its downplaying the unique and singular nature of the Christian revelation. He goes on to say, this pontificate has also, so critics argue, played loose with the notion of truth, thereby conflating mercy with indulgence, treating mercy as a kind of new trademarked product of this papacy, and detaching mercy from justice, a virtue tied inextricably to truth. Now, I don't know about you guys, but that litany there doesn't strike me as respectful criticism of the Pope. To describe the papacy, the current papacy, as having anti-intellectual resentments and to have played loose with the notion of truth doesn't quite strike me as someone who truly respects the Pope and his office, the type of thing that they would say. Before I get too worked up, um, Dan, <laughs> you look like you're chomping at the bit. Do you have anything to say about this? Well, honestly, I tend to avoid a lot of the polemics nowadays uh, for my own well-being. And that was actually the first time I've actually heard that. So as you're reading, it just it, it just kept going and kept going. <laughs> I was like, is this, is this ever going to end? Uh, but. I think I think it is true that I mean something towards the end of that litany was how Francis has trademarked mercy for this new age or whatever it was, and uh, I, I think I mean if you're going to understand Francis, you're going to understand that mercy's mercy comes first in his his sort of pastoral regime, and uh, so I guess he got one thing right, but well, anything else I don't know. Although the way that he defines Francis's version of of mercy is that he's detached mercy from justice which is a virtue tied inextricably to truth. So basically, and this is a point of rhetoric that came up quite early in the papacy, actually, when Pope Francis initiated the year of mercy, um, they said, well, this isn't true Christian mercy. True Christian mercy has to be tied to the truth. And Pope Francis is ignoring truth. Um, what is what is truth without mercy, though? I don't understand. This is, this is a Christian church that I don't, I don't understand that you can have a truth that is somehow uh, separated from mercy or uh, a mercy that is subjugated to, to truth in some way. I mean, no, mercy is truth. That's the whole point. God is love. God is truth. It's the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think what they are trying to say is that what Francis has defined as mercy is some kind of permissiveness or 
uh, ignoring the consequences of sin or the responsibility of people to repent. Um, one thing that uh, has become very clear uh, to people who've been watching his daily mass homilies is, yeah, he says, he says the little lines about rigid priests, or I, I remember early on bat like Christians who hang upside down in their caves or, you know, pickle faced, uh, sour pusses or, um, but 90% of what he says is just hammering home traditional Christian concept, Catholic concepts of repentance, conversion, turning to Christ, reforming your life. Um, it's like that, uh, like the Irby at Orby, which is basically what that was all about. Was that's right. Turning and, to Christ. and they actually sat there and had to watch the whole thing rather than <laughs> read the soundbite in life site news the next day. Um, yeah, I, 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 I really love Dan that you are able to some <laughs> somehow stay out of the muck, uh, on this I'll leave that stuff. to you guys. Well, you know, Paul, uh, I know you're a big mercy guy. Um, what, I mean, you've seen this kind of criticism. I know that your big introduction to Pope Francis and to his message was reading his book, the name of God is mercy. Why do you think Pope Francis's critics have pegged him so strongly as getting the concept of mercy wrong? What is it about them and what is it about his message that rubs them the wrong way? I found Pope Francis's message when I first heard it. I found it to be very different than what I heard before. Uh, personally, part of it was because I hadn't paid much attention to what Pope posts were writing before. Um, most of my Catholicism information was was through sources like EWTN and LifeSite News and the Catholic thing and sources like that. So when I started reading Pope Francis, it did sound very different than those sources. A friend of mine once said to me, she's like, so if there's something spiritually problematic, ask yourself, what's, what's the lie behind it, right? What's, what's the spirit behind it? And this is something that, that Pope Francis has talked about too with his Jesuit spirituality um, the sense of the, the the good spirit and the bad spirit, right? What's the spirit behind it? And I think that this fear of mercy, I think the lie behind it is a a lack of trust in God. I think often, and I say this of the Christianity that I used to believe and practice, was that I feel more sure when I'm able to follow all the rules I feel more secure and safe in my own ability to follow all the rules rather than then feeling secure in, in God's goodness and God's mercy and his love for me. I think the lie behind what, what Pope Francis deems as, as rigid Christianity, which is a Christianity that fails to listen to the Holy Spirit, the lie behind that is that God really isn't good and that I have to rely on following the rules for my own security. When I uh, hear the critics of Pope Francis, I hear a lot of the type of Christianity that I believed six or eight years ago. And, and back then in my life, in my relationship with God, uh, I really, not that I doubted God's goodness and his mercy, 
but I didn't make that the anchor of my faith and my relationship with him. I made uh, arguing the points. I made uh, the moral law. I made these other things, the anchor of my faith and not his goodness. That's what I see in the critics. And that's, that's something I can certainly relate to in my, my own spiritual life. It's, it's that whole, uh, am I good because I fear hell or because I love God? Um, and, and for me, it was, it was the former, um, to a great extent there was, there was fear, but there was also the mistrust that we spoke about earlier with the, with the Easter people. Um, there's something, uh, within, uh, traditional Catholicism. And I, I mean, I was never a full blown Latin mass going traditionalist, but I definitely grew up in sort of that reactionary conservative Catholic environment where there was a fear that control was going to be lost or that the church was headed in the wrong direction or that someday there would be this um, heretic pope that would deceive the church and take the church off the rails. I mean, this is this is a real fear that a lot of Catholics have. And it wasn't until I, you know, read more deeply into papal primacy and Vatican one and about Christ's promise to the church, uh, giving Peter the keys and, and promising that the gates of hell wouldn't prevail. And I really internalized that message that that fear began to go away. And, and what I see in a lot of, a lot of papal critics is that they have that fear that I used to have. And Dan, I know you're, you're not a big fan of the polemics actually. So Pedro, uh, D.W. Lafferty and myself are, are the three, like, let's hammer <laughs> Pope Francis's critics um, at the where in the where Peter is group. I don't know. And, and this is something that really does bother me because, you know, I don't I don't know Fran Mayer. I've never met the man. I just came across that piece and it, it just I guess I was a little I was not a little irked. I was irked by the fact that this man who uh, has ri risen to, to prominence in the church, I think he, he recently got a papal knighthood that he would take to a widely read uh, secular national magazine and, and write a piece essentially attacking the Pope, even though he said he was being respectful, and especially attacking the people who defend the Pope. And maybe I take this a little too personally, but I guess I see on the ground that this is that this is really influencing people like people in the pews, priests, seminarians. They read this sort of thing and they develop these negative impressions of the pope or they or they develop this idea that uh, believing that the pope is uh, denying the notion of truth, playing loose with the notion of truth. I don't know. I, I mean, part of the reason why I started where Peter is and, and sorry if I'm, I'm ranting, but part of the reason why I started the website was because I saw people being drawn into these mentalities and nobody was doing anything or very few people were directly addressing this problem. I appreciate you doing that. In fact, you know, even if it's not within my personality or my ability to really take, take these people on. Uh, I do appreciate it. And, you know, I could recognize even a couple of years ago when I kind of joined um, that you were pointing out a few things that, you know, I kind of had an inkling about, well, that doesn't seem right. That that's not the best way to say that. Or 
that's not what Francis said. And it kind of got to the point was like all the time, like, are you guys, are you joking me? What, what are you guys talking about? And so in response to, I think it was Arroyo at the time, I saw one of your tweets and I was like, oh, okay, well, this guy, this guy gets it. I think you wrote like a three part series on the world over and something that he was doing or the people that he was having on. I was like, okay, well, this, this makes sense. I think I understand that there are some Catholics out there that have issue with the way that Francis is being portrayed in the media. And so I was happy to kind of help out and join on. And it was, it was in fact that uh, Gaudete et Exultate is the first one that I really got into. And I, I would say, you know, to Paul's point earlier, that, that document was, life-changing for me and it was just at the time that i was joining where peter is and it was my, like i said it was my first article but um this whole concept of mercy comes first and you know that's the basis for everything like you would think that obviously a catholic would know that but you know no i actually i had grown up in this sort of like you know kind of traditional conservative mindset and it was ne mercy was never stressed it was always about it was always about sin and how not to sin. And if you sin, you go to confession. And there was never this <laughs> point where, hey, actually, guys, do you know that um, Catholics believe that mercy comes first and that you're saved through faith and all this stuff that I thought was anathema because the Protestants believed it? And it's just like, oh, my gosh, this is life changing. Um, and so it's really been a journey for me in these past couple of years. And, you know, I, I kind of like to go back to that positive aspect, this this sort of sense of discovery that I got when I read that document. And that's what I try to do in, the, in my writing. Well, you guys do the polemics. That's fine with me. But uh, <laughs> I, I really want to help people maybe understand that a positive aspect of their faith that always got misconstrued because of all the the spin or or just the way that it's been portrayed in the media or just the way that culture has been in America, it's, um, that's what I try to do. Well, and I, and I actually really appreciate that. Uh, one of the terms that I used when I, you know, Paul was there when we launched the website was I wanted to backfill Pope Francis's papacy. Um, and what I mean by that is, for the first two or three years of his papacy, everything he said and everything he did was met by certain media outlets with suspicion, um, you know, honing in on that one controversial or that one, you know, eyebrow raising sentence, whether it was who am I to judge or uh, don't be like rabbits or, or whatever the line is, uh, whatever the, whatever the line was, they would pick out, a phrase or, or an interview or one thing. And it was like, didn't you read the rest of this document? I mean, no, Amoris Laetitia is reduced to a single footnote and it's, it's this beautiful document on marriage and the family with some pastoral guidelines at the end that largely follow common sense if you read them, they, I mean, it follows logically when he's talking about how to accompany people, how to listen to them, uh, the stages in their journey and how to help them at the various stages and how to discern where they are in their relationship with God. And one of my main goals with where Peter is, was to actually have those discussions or, or bring up those issues, bring up those teachings in light of Francis's papacy or, or directly from Pope Francis to bring these to people. I mean, I, I would say that we've 
haven't obviously based on my recent piece, we haven't completely turned the corner away from the polemics. And like I said, I, I hate to single out, you know, one person and one piece, but I felt like I had read that litany eight times. I mean, anti-intellectual, loose with the notion of truth, uh, undermining a healthy Christian anthropology. Like I've, 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 and then this notion that he's teaching a false mercy. It's like, please stop it. This is the vicar of Christ. You're supposed to be a loyal Catholic, but I promise I'll write some more positively minded <laughs> pieces. <laughs> I, 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 I think there's, it's, it's interesting seeing this in this moment right now, because so, so my biggest concern as someone who works in a parish and who, who really has come to a much greater uh, faith and a much greater relationship with the Lord because of Pope Francis, I want to share this stuff with other people, but there's a wall in front and the wall in front is uh, all this suspicion and negativity and criticism that people have been, the regular Catholics have been fed for so long. Uh, if, if, if someone's diet of of Catholic news and Catholic media is primarily EWTN and EWTN uh, affiliates like the National Catholic Register and Catholic News Agency. There's specific ways that they that they breed suspicion and criticism of the Pope, like Raymond Arroyo being an example. And there's a general ethos to it. And if that's someone's sole diet of Catholic media, then their attitude towards the Pope becomes blocked and they're not able to receive the fruit of what he has to say the way that the way that they should be. And I see that as a tremendous injustice that these media sources are doing for regular Catholics. I mean, like I've heard from friends who are like, yeah, in my men's group, we were going to read uh, one of Pope Francis's documents and some people in my men's group refused to read it because it was from the Pope. Right. Or there was another friend and they were feeling really like discontent with the direction of the church and had a lot of anxiety about it. And I was like, Hey, read this document and this document from the Pope. And let's talk after that. And they came back and their attitude was completely different. They're like, I don't know what people's problems with the Pope is like, this was amazing. And their faith was changed. And they were going back to their small groups and being like, stop listening EWTN and just just read what he has to say, right? So there's a part of me that gets fired up, and I want to I want to dive into the critics, and I there there's been times when I have, and I want to take these people head on. But what's interesting is in this moment, people who have been at the least at the very least suspicious, at the worst overtly critical of the Pope, are now being like like especially the Urbi at Orbi, they're like. He's, he's the pastor of the world. Look at how he's stepping up to this. Look at how great this is. And I don't think it's just show. I think people who, um, not just the vocal ones, but the regular Catholics who may have had this wall up for a long time because of the media they've been consuming. Now his pastoral message in this moment is breaking through. So th that's really where I'm at at this point in, in my own prayer and reflection on this is in this moment, I don't want to focus on the critics and, and dressing them head on. There's a place for that. But I want to focus on what he's saying now to the church is really important. 
And that's changing, changing people's hearts right now, even if they've been suspicious of him in the past. Yeah. And, and I, I totally appreciate that. And, and let me tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that there are only a couple of polemicists in the group. Um, you know, among our contributors, because I mean, we, we put forth a lot of high quality, uh, writing and I don't want to just toot our own horn. Um, but for me, like each of you, there was a document that Pope Francis wrote that changed my life. And it, it was Evangelii Gaudium, which came out in, in 2013 in the very first year of his papacy. I read it and it clicked with me. And I, I was like, this man gets it. You know, you, you mentioned leading with mercy, but, uh, and in that document, mercy was definitely an integral part, but also there was sort of this, this brash missionary, uh, leading with the gospel, the joy of the gospel leading, uh, with Jesus Christ, but not, not in a way that's not proselytism. Um, but being open about who you are, why you are who you are, being clear about what inspires you to be a Christian, what inspires you, uh, what motivates you to do good works and, and to remain close to God. And, and that's Jesus Christ. So that's why it was so alarming to me, because I don't even think I noticed the critics uh, until about a year or so into the papacy. I mean, I was just wrapped up from day one in just every gesture he made. And, you know, that first, that first Holy Thursday, uh, going to the prison, I was like, wow, I mean, that's a little out of my comfort zone, but wow. Um, the statement, a poor church for the poor, that's what he wanted to create. And, and well, yeah, the church takes care of the, poor. I had never conceived of the poor being at the forefront of our church in a, in a, in a real tangible way, maybe in a theoretical way. But when he talks about the periphery and the discarded and the throwaway culture and people get tied up over these nitpicky little theological questions. And I just, I just shake my head because I, I, they're missing out on so much that's good and they're focusing on things that are just not that important when it really comes down to it. Dan, do you want to close us out with some thoughts about Pope Francis? I would say that even Jelly Gaudium, I always, I love coming back to that document because it's really like the mission statement, not just the mission statement, but the plan of action and steps that you can take, like multiple groups are addressed. And, you know, as a president of my parish council, I'll go and I'll talk about some of the challenges <laughs> that parish councils face. And here's here's a guy who who ran a diocese. Here's a guy who is practical minded at, at the same time that he is very theologically attuned to the to this gospel of mercy. And I love that aspect of it. It's it's it's. It's theological, it's it's practical, and there's always something you could do. I mentioned this in the last last podcast, but there's always something that you can read from Pope Francis where he's just asking you to do one little thing, just just kind of asking you to go one step further and and, and pushing you, encouraging you, inspiring you. And I find that I, I love that about I love that about Pope Francis. 
Absolutely. Well, that wraps up our second episode of Peter's Field Hospital. Um, on behalf of all of the contributors of Where Peter Is, I would like to wish you all a very blessed and holy, holy week. Uh, have a great Easter. Spend time in prayer with the Lord. And remember that God is always with us 